Okay, we'll go ahead and get started if we could. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to give you praise and honor and glory, which you so rightly deserve. Lord, thank you for the saints who've come out in the duck-like weather this morning. Pray that you would uh, bless their diligence to be here, that you would use your word to teach us, give us an understanding that only comes by the light of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we know we're dependent upon you to do that, and so we depend, uh, rest in that. And uh, thank you for the book of Daniel and the great privilege we have to openly discuss it. May you be given glory this morning. Amen. This is week number seven in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter two. Um, won't quite get through the end of chapter two today, but last week we looked at the passage that speaks of um, Nebuchadnezzar giving an order to kill all the wise men, so the chief of his bodyguards, Arioch, goes to Daniel and says, I've got to kill you. And so Daniel asks him why the harshness of the order. And so Arioch explains it to him. So Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and asks for some time, which Nebuchadnezzar grants him that he might uh, know the dream and know the interpretation of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, has not shared it with anybody. And so Daniel immediately goes back to his three friends and the four of them begin to pray, knowing that the only way they're going to know this dream and its interpretation is if God shows it to them. So they, um, they uh, begin to pray, asking God to give them both the dream and the interpretation. And the next thing we know is that God gives Daniel a vision. And so Daniel sees the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, he sees the... Um, the dream, and then apparently God relates to him the interpretation of the dream. We're not given that, but Daniel clearly knows what the interpretation of the dream is. And so in thanksgiving to God, Daniel has this um, marvelous prayer in which he praises God, he thanks God, he acknowledges who God is. And you remember that he gave us several things in there, is that God is the one who changes times and epics. And one of his chief ways of doing that is that he tears down king, uh, kings and he establishes kings. He's the one who gives wise men uh, knowledge and anybody who has understanding gets that understanding because God gives it to them. Uh, he's the one who reveals hidden things and he knows what is in the darkness because light dwells with him um, at all times. And so this marvelous prayer in which <clears throat> Daniel acknowledges who God is, uh, praises him for that, recognizes that the only way he has any understanding is that it came from God. Nothing special about Daniel. He even says that later. And Daniel knows that God is in control of all that is happening 
and that he has blessed him to give him this prayer. You know, once Daniel knows this prayer and understands this prayer, um, he knows that he and his friends are going to be safe. And you can see that in the language that he uses. Um, even in his prayer, he says that we asked you and that you showed us <clears throat> the meaning of the dream, meaning that his friends are participating in that. Later, when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he again includes his friends and say, says that we give you the interpretation. And so Daniel always acknowledging that it's the four of them. So he knew the four of them would be safe, but he has no idea if Nebuchadnezzar is still going to kill all the wise men. I mean, he clearly pleads for them, for them not to be killed, but he doesn't know what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. So um, <clears throat> Daniel acknowledges that humility before Nebuchadnezzar. He says that, I have this interpretation not because I have any special knowledge or there's anything special in me. I have it only because the God of heaven revealed it to me and he is the one who reveals mysteries. And so Daniel has kind of set Nebuchadnezzar up that this isn't coming from me, this is coming from the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar understands that clearly because after at the end when Daniel stops talking and Nebuchadnezzar begins, he too praises the God of heaven. And so we'll see that, not this week, but next week. But Nebuchadnezzar knows what is going on. He well understands what Daniel wanted to communicate. And that is that he and his four friends asked the God of heaven to give him the dream and the interpretation, and that he did. So um, picking up this morning in verse 31, we've got this... Um, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which Daniel is going to unfold for us. For the next 15 verses, it's just Daniel talking. It uh, has been for a few verses here, but verses 31 through 45 are the dream and its interpretation. And it just goes in rapid fire. There's no, no delay in what um, Daniel will say to Nebuchadnezzar. So we're read the first five verses of this passage, 31 through 35 of Daniel chapter two. There the scripture reads, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut, cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that was struck, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so there's the whole dream. That is a image of a statue and the only action is that uh, a stone is cut without hands 
not that the stone doesn't have any hands, but no hands cut the stone. And then that stone crushes the statue. So, um, and that's it. That's, that's the whole dream. I think um, while, while Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled, wasn't it wasn't because of the appearance. I mean, this you do have this awesome um, statue that's full of splendor and then is destroyed. I mean, that could be a little bit troubling. But the main reason it troubles him is that he does not understand what it means. He has no clue as to what this vision that he had, this dream, <clears throat> what its interpretation is. And so he puts the demand on the wise men to tell him the dream so that he can trust their interpretation. Meaning, if you know what the dream was, then you probably know what the interpretation is also. If you don't know what the dream is, then how could you interpret it? So um, Daniel apparently gets every detail exactly right because Nebuchadnezzar says not a word in response to Daniel being able to tell him this dream. And you can just imagine the wise men standing there is like, how in the world does he know what this dream was? Um, because they had no clue what the dream was. Now, the statue that he sees is made of several types of material. The head is gold. The arms and the breast are silver. The belly down through the thighs is bronze. And then the legs are made of iron. And then the feet, probably the toes, are both iron and clay, because later he says toes. So <clears throat> you've got these, what's that, one, two, three, four, five, five types of material that are all in this statue. And, it, you know, it's a sight to behold, because he says it's awesome and it's full of splendor. So it is magnificent. We have no idea how tall it was, how big it was, um, we don't know. We know that later, when Nebuchadnezzar builds his statue, that it's 90 feet tall and 10 feet wide, 9 feet wide. So maybe it was of that size. We don't know. But um, it has all these precious materials that it's made out of. Now, when the stone that is cut without hands, it doesn't say what kind of stone it is, um, we know this, that it can crush iron, uh, because it does, so it's got to be something pretty strong, um, you know, because iron typically trumps everything in being able to crush them. Um, so anyway, this stone comes, and you notice it doesn't just demolish the statue, it first hits it on its feet. Well, if you take the feet from under a statue, then what's going to happen? statue is going to fall. And so the statue falls to the, to the ground, apparently, and this stone begins to crush all of it at the same time, so much so that it makes it become like dust. He says it's like um, the, thre the um, chaff on the threshing floor, you know, with, <clears throat> with wheat or with barley or whatever. You beat the stalks on the ground, so that the seed will fall to the ground, and with that seed will fall some chaff, just little particles of, of the stalk, and 
then all you got to do is blow on it, and the seeds will stay still, but the chaff will be blown away, and you'll wind up with just the grain. Well, and that's the way they did it. Um, they didn't have all the mechanized ways that we do. And so that's what this is like, is that this gold, the silver, the iron, uh, the bronze, and the clay are so pulmerized by the stone that the wind comes and blows them away like chaff. Such that, to the point where there's no trace of them left, so they're just scattered, I guess, to the desert or wherever that you can't even find any of it anymore. It's so pulmerized. And so that statue is, um, is more than just destroyed. It's that you can't ever find it again. It's done away forever. And not even the particles can be found. So um, this alarms Nebuchadnezzar. What in the world could this possibly mean? And so Daniel now is going to give us the interpretation. Um, if you think about this, this is easy for us to understand, right? What these different materials were made of. I mean, we'll, we'll read it, we'll understand it, it's pretty clear. Um, Daniel doesn't know all the names of the kingdoms, but he certainly knows the order of the kingdoms. And from our perspective, looking historically, it's easy to see what these were. But remember, this interpretation, this is given before 600 BC. So this is why Babylon is at its height and Daniel is going to name four other kingdoms that will come after Babylon that extend all the way until um, at least the 1400s AD. So you're talking about 2,000 years worth of history that is detailed here and then a big skip to the end of times. Um, and he doesn't talk about any empire after these four. And really, there was never an empire that conquered the world like these four did. And you have to remember that when you talk about the world in, from the Old Testament perspective, you're not talking about, I mean, they knew about the Far East, but not much, just that some men came from there. They had no idea about places like North America or South America. I mean, those you, those you won't find any of that in Scripture. So when you say the world in the terms of, of these passages, you're talking about the known world. And so that would be mainly the Middle East, uh, Europe, Northern Africa, um, and a little bit up toward Russia. So, but that, that's the known world at this time. So when it talks about that, um, we'll see it later, Babylon um, was commander of the whole world, it's not talking about the sphere, okay? It's talking about what they knew about. Um, at least that's the way I read it, um, because they had no idea about these other lands, not for many centuries. 
centuries, actually uh, millennial, right? It's two millennia before they knew about North America. So, um, okay, so Daniel's going to interpret this dream for us, beginning in verse 36. So we just read the interpretation, then we'll go back and review who it's speaking of. This was the dream now. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. And you immediately notice that Daniel says, we. Who's the we? It's him and his three friends. So here Daniel continues in that vein of it's not just me and there's nothing special in me. It's the four of us who asked God to give us this interpretation, and he did, and so we're going to give it to you. And it, it's just, um, he just lays it out. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the, all the earth. Then there will be a fourth king kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so Daniel just lays out this interpretation of what this means. It speaks of kingdoms that exist and will exist in the future. And it's just that simple, and he just readily speaks them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, we'll see it next week, is delighted that Daniel was able to do this because he's made it clear. And I think somewhat he's arrogant because of what Daniel says to him because the very next thing we have in Daniel is he builds the statue of gold. So... Um, he knew what Daniel meant, and he took it literally and becomes more arrogant because of it. 
because the very first thing Daniel tells him is that he's the great king. He rules over not only the people, but the beasts and the uh, um, birds of the air. He rules over all that exists. There is no other kingdom other than his kingdom, so he is the king that is represented by the head of gold. That is the Babylonian kingdom, um, Nabopolosar being his, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, then Nebuchadnezzar, and then Belshazzar, who is his son. Those are the three kings that rule over uh, the kingdom of Babylon, and very quickly it's done away with. Now, this kingdom only lasts another 65 years or so after Daniel speaks this interpretation, so it's not long-lasting, uh, not like the other kingdoms that we'll talk about that last much longer than Babylon did. Now, Babylon was, without question, the power of this time. They defeated the Assyrians. They defeated all the lands around Judea. They defeated the Egyptians. Uh, they pushed far into uh, northern Africa. Um, so there is nobody else at this time other than Babylon. They are unmistakably the world power. Now, notice what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. He says that you are the head of gold because, and he gives it to him very straightforwardly uh, as he begins to speak here, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom God has, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, strength, and glory. So his kingdom, power, strength, and glory are not because he's such a strong guy or is it because he's so special, but it's because God gave it to him. And that's what Daniel prayed when he prayed, is that God is the one who establishes kings and the one who tears them down. And so he says the very same thing to Nebuchadnezzar, although I think it goes over Nebuchadnezzar's head because he says that you're the head of gold and that trumps everything. But he clearly tells Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason you have this kingdom of Babylon is because God gave it to you. Yeah. For some reason, and you see this so prevalent today, we seem to think we have a God who is here to serve us, to build us up, to give us what we want. And, and that, the very reason God often does that is to, as Nebuchadnezzar will in a few chapters, after more extraordinary things happen, he will be humble. Yeah. Yeah. And um, all of these kingdoms that are established are established by God. And he humbles every one of them, ultimately humbling them with his own kingdom. And he uses one after another to tear the previous one right. down, because that's the heart of man. Right. Well, and we saw that with the Assyrians who destroyed Israel, that they are then destroyed by Babylon, Babylon being destroyed by Persia because they destroyed Jerusalem, which God ordained for them to do. You figure it out. <laughs> so, um, so Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. So 
Daniel doesn't actually mention the silver, which is the arms and the chest, but he does mention the bronze as being the one that comes after this, the third kingdom. So you just assume that the silver and the arms are the second kingdom. Because here in um, verse 39, he just quickly says, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. So the bronze is the third kingdom, the silver is the second kingdom. Now, just because we know history, we know what happened. That, um, trying to get the year right here, that the kingdom that destroyed Babylon didn't really destroy it, it just took it over without even a fight really. Um, just kind of came in and they were so weak under Belshazzar as their king that Persia, Cyrus of Persia, just comes in and takes it and actually makes Babylon his own capital for a while. And so the kingdom that comes after Babylon is Persia. And um, Persia is um, in the mid uh, sixth century is 550, 553, somewhere right around there where they come in and they take um, Babylon. And so, and, and again, it's without a fight. Um, they just march into the city. And actually, Cyrus the Persian doesn't march into the city. He sends some of his generals and they march into the city and then a few months later, Cyrus comes. In all of this, uh, we have the scripture and we trust the scripture, but all of this is also chronicled in the Babylonian tablets, in the Persian tablets. I mean, we, we have documents from this time that men who have learned how to read those can, can read them and tell us these events that we're talking about here that are detailed in scripture that were written before the history actually happened. So, I mean, the world history does play out exactly like is detailed here in the interpretation of this dream, which is why this in, um, matched up with chapter 10 or 11, I can't remember. It's one of those two which has a number of predictions, somewhere around 100, that men say this was not, no possibility it was written in the 6th century B.C. It had to be written in the 1st century B.C. because there's no way anybody could have known this. Well, that's true. There is no way anybody could have known this unless God revealed it to them. So we'll stay with the idea that Daniel wrote this in the 6th century B.C., somewhere in the 500s, probably close to 550, maybe even after Persia took over Babylon, probably after Persia took over Babylon. Okay, so the first kingdom is Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. The second kingdom would then be the Persians, who would be represented by the silver, the silver of the chest and the silver of the arms. Okay, so we move on down and now, Realize this is this is three hundred 
Yeah, 300 years before Alexander the Great is born. So it's um, 500 years before um, Caesar is born. So you've got this, I mean, far-reaching predictions. Julius Caesar not born for 500 years after this interpretation is given. And Alexander the Great, who would be the third kingdom that comes, is represented by the bronze, which is the belly and the thighs. Why? Because it was Alexander the Great who defeated the Persian kingdom. Persia lasts for about 200 years. And then as um, Alexander the Great pushes out of Europe into the Middle East, um, going you know, eastward, that he comes against Persia and defeats Persia. Now, shortly thereafter, you know the story, Alexander the Great dies and his kingdom is divided into four kingdoms. But nevertheless, the bronze represents Greece and their kingdoms because they're the ones who then took over after the Persians. So very quickly, verse 39 here lays out like 500 years of history through the Persian and the Greek dynasties, their, their kingdoms. And there's a whole lot that goes on in the Greek kingdom once it's divided into four pieces, but none of that's detailed here because it all resulted from the one single Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great, and so it's all considered Grecian. And they did um, influence the, really the whole world with their literature, with their art, with their mythology, all of that permeated really all of the world because they, in these four kingdoms, dominated most of the world. And so the Persians are gone and the Greeks come in and that's verse 39. So very quickly you've moved from Babylon to Persia through the Greeks and then more time is spent on the next kingdom which begins in verse 40. Now this kingdom is um, interesting because it's, it's a couple of things. It's the legs of iron and the feet of iron and the toes of iron and clay is the way it's described. And so um, he says that it represents a divided kingdom uh, So and that the clay and the iron, of course, could not adhere to one another um, as metal would adhere to one another. So... Uh, the clay becomes brittle if it's left out in the sun, and that's what he says, is that the, the clay becomes brittle. And so who is it that defeated the Greeks and took over after the Greeks? That would be the Romans who came in. Now, Rome existed for a long time before it became what we know as the Roman Empire. Before that, for really hundreds of years, it was what was known as the Roman Republic. And so very organized, very well-developed uh, 
but not in control. Greek still be, Greece still being in control. But Rome had existed um, really for a couple of hundred years before you have the Roman Empire, which started with Julius Caesar, uh, which became the force to be reckoned with. And of course, they defeated the Grecian kingdom somewhere in the first century BC is where the transition really took place. I mean, it started before that, but that's where it was completed. And so Rome takes over really the whole world. And that goes on for hundreds of years, the Roman Empire. It's the empire that existed when Jesus Christ was born. That is no longer the Roman Republic. It's the Roman Empire uh, with brutal force, the iron that crushes everything. They clearly crushed Palestine, were occupied Palestine during the time of Christ, ultimately um, destroy the temple that was built by Zerubbabel in 70 AD um, and decimate really uh, the Jewish nation. Um, Jews scattered everywhere in the world, which is why even till today, you still have Jews all over the place because they had to flee when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. So um, Rome is this kingdom that is the legs of iron. Now, quickly, we just talk about it. Um, Rome, as the Roman Empire, based in Rome, exists until 330 A.D. And at that time, um, Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople, which is known today as Istanbul in Turkey, same city. Okay, and there you then have the divided kingdom. You've got the Western Roman kingdom, which is based in Rome, and you've got the Eastern Roman kingdom that is based in Constantinople. Okay, so there's the divided kingdom that Daniel speaks of. The kingdom will be divided. Now, it doesn't go so well for the Western Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, it doesn't take very long. It, um, ultimately, in um, what's the year when in 486 Rome is burned, and you no longer have a Western Roman Empire. So, 100 and, just a little over 100 years later, after the capital of the Roman Empire moves to, to Constantinople, Rome is overrun. Now, all during that hundred years, and even before, you have raids of barbarian tribes coming in and raiding Rome and fighting against the Romans and taking their authority. And there are a myriad of these. There's not just one or two. Um, I actually have it written here on your note sheet that there are 10 of them that overrun, at least this is the way the historians break them down. Okay, now I'm not an expert on ancient history, but I, I can read. And so as you read the history, here are the 10 tribes that decimated Rome, not one at a time, not all together, but over a period of time. 
And you'll notice where they come, I mean, we know some of these today, right? The Visigoths, which came out of Spain, the Franks, which came out of France, the Alemanni, which came out of Germany, the Anglo-Saxon, which came out of England, the Lombards, which came out of Italy, Suvai, out of Portugal, the Burgundians, out of Switzerland, the Her, Her how would you say, Heruli, a Germanic tribe, the Vandals, a Germanic tribe, the Ostrogoths, a Germanic tribe. So some of these we recognize today, right? These are the kingdoms that came out of the Roman kingdom that overthrew the Roman Western kingdom. And so you've got England, you've got Switzerland, you've got Spain, you've got France, you have Germany, um, all of these that still exist today. And so this is the divided kingdom. Some of these, and, and clearly those people, while they mixed, they, if you're a German, you're not a Fran French, right? If you're a French, you're not a Spaniard. And if you're in England, you certainly aren't any of those, right? I mean, they're very proud of their heritage and who they are. Yeah, I mean, and rightfully so, because they've lasted for thousands of years. But nevertheless, this is what it says that some were strong, some were weak. They mixed, but only begot a seed of man, meaning that they certainly were a lot of intermarriages and all of that, but the peoples stayed true to their nations. And that's what it says. They're a divided kingdom. Some were strong, some were weak. And so it's talking about the Western Roman Empire here when it talks about the brittle and the mixing. Now, the, the legs of iron, if you go to Constantinople, then that's what's known as, more typically, the Byzantine Empire. Um, the Byzantine Empire, which started with, um, uh, when they moved to Constantinople, lasts for a thousand years, really 1,100 years. It lasts all the way until the fifth century AD, into the 400s, and ultimately, that empire, and this is the one that's not mentioned. If you think about it, the Roman Empire was the last one that dominated all the world because they dominated everything up until the time when they moved the capital and then the Western Kingdom was squashed. Even the Byzantine Empire which extended all the way down into Palestine, down to Egypt, all of that whole region from Turkey down was all the Byzantine Empire. That's not the whole world. You still had these other nations of Europe that existed. So the Byzantine Empire is not a world empire. And then after the Byzantine Empire, ultimately they're defeated, Constantinople falls to the Ottomans. And the Ottomans take over in the 400s and change the name of Constantinople to Istanbul. And that's their capital. And they then own everything that the Byzantine Empire owned up until, you know, from 400s up until World War I. And World War I 
change the face of the globe. Now, we have a hard time understanding this because we, um, I think all of us, were born after World War I, right? Some pretty close, but after. <laughs> so we don't have that perspective. We don't remember the Ottoman Empire like they would have remembered it. But those nations like Iran and Iraq and, um, you know, in that general area, they did not exist until the Ottoman Empire was split up. Now, the World War I ended in 1918. In 1922, there was a pact and the nations were all split up. And that's when Iraq and Iran uh, Saudi Arabia already existed, but uh, Yemen, some of those other nations that are in that area, they didn't exist because they were all part of the Ottoman Empire, but they exist now. So those nations have not been long in existence, is relatively, you know, 100 years that they've existed. So that, that needs to inform our perspective of what we think about when we think about the Middle East. You know, Israel not a nation until what, 47, 1947. So, you know, after World War II, did it, was Israel made a nation? And so, um, you know, we think about the ancient history of the Middle East and that's all true, but not in its current form. That current form has only been around 100 years. So when, you, when we get later and you start thinking about eschatology, realize that this future telling through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar doesn't include any of that because none of that, not even the US, not even Russia, not even China, dominate the world. Now they're all what we call world powers, right? There are seven of them if you count the way that the United Nations counts, but none of them dominate the world. Rome was the last one to do that. But they can't, right. Right. And you see a very similar, they're unified in mind because God had put that in their mind. But yet the nature of humanity, particularly when you give them lots of power and money, is to just war within themselves until they literally fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, and then those ten horns um, that are mentioned later, we don't know the nations that those represent. A lot of people like to say, well, I know it's this and this and that. No, you don't. It's moved all the way from this. Yeah, yeah, you just don't know, okay? So just quit saying you know, because nobody really knows which ten kings those are that give their kingdoms to the Antichrist. Because that's, that's why they're kings. So they will do that because God puts it in their mind. And we don't know what those ten kingdoms are. Although we like to speculate and say we know. Um, and so 
are these ten toes the ten that lead to those kingdoms? We don't know that either. God doesn't connect those dots. Um, is the Antichrist European or is he um, out of Constantinople or is he Middle Eastern? We don't know. A lot of men speculate different things. Uh, I have my opinion that I'll tell you later on. Um, and I have reasons why I have that opinion. Um, but we don't know. But we'll come to that in Daniel. Well, at least we'll have to talk about it. Because the Antichrist shows up in chapter 9 of Daniel. So we'll have to we'll at least talk about that some. But here, this is God's perspective of the future of humanity. Rome is the last kingdom that controlled the whole world. After that, it was fragmented and split. And today, what are there, 172 nations or something crazy like that? Um, some significant, some not. Some strong, some weak. Um, so this has gone on now um, for, really, if you think about it, Rome fell in 400s. So it's gone on for 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 years where nobody has dominated the world. England almost did. You could say they were pretty powerful and they took over a lot of part of the world, but not like the Romans did. So um, the last kingdom is the eternal kingdom. And this is the kingdom of the stone cut without hands. Okay, meaning that somehow the stone is cut out of the, um, you know, the wall of a cavern or somewhere the stone comes from, and it's strong enough that it can crush the gold, the iron, the silver, the clay, the bronze. It can crush it all, and it does. And Daniel very clearly says that this is a kingdom that will endure forever. It will never come to an end. So, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care about that. He just cares about the gold head. And he tells him that this kingdom is really a divine kingdom. It's the kingdom of the God of heaven. In those days, the kings... Uh, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So God himself, who's revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar at this time, will set up his own kingdom, and it will endure forever, never to come to an end. So we know that. We know that it's the divine kingdom. Um, we Men argue, does that begin at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and then go on forever? Is there no millennial kingdom and it happens after uh, Christ comes and, uh, you know, we usher in the reign of Christ as the church? I mean, men argue about that, but everybody agrees that in the end, there is a divine kingdom. And that only those who believe will enter into that kingdom. That we all agree on. And I guess that's a good thing. Right, because that's where we'll be for the longest period of time. From then, when it begins, whenever that is, to the end of eternity, which never comes. So we agree that that kingdom will endure forever. We could argue about how it gets started. 
but it goes on forever and ever. And that's what Daniel says. And then Daniel looks at the king and says, King, this is the interpretation from the God of heaven. It's true and it's trustworthy. And absolutely, amen. Although men hate, hate this interpretation. Push against it all the time. Uh, disregard this is the future of humanity. But Daniel says, it's from God, it's true, and it's trustworthy. And I agree with him. So this ought to be our perspective when we think about what's going to happen in the future. Now, we're given other details, and Daniel gets to those, that we'll try and fill in some of that time after the kingdom of Rome, because we know that it's been um, you know, 1,700 years since Rome burned. So something's got to fill that in, and Daniel will do some of that for us. So that's the, the dream and the interpretation. And, um, and then we'll see what next time what King Nebuchadnezzar says in response, which is really kind of remarkable. I mean, he, he moves a long way when Daniel gives him this interpretation. He's still arrogant. He's still a cruel leader. He's still full of himself, but nevertheless, he, he gets it right at the end of this uh, interpretation of the dream. So that, that we'll look at next time, if the Lord wills. Right, and we'll see that. The, next, the very next thing that happens in chapter 3 after Nebuchadnezzar responds is you have the image of gold that everybody is called to worship. So we'll get to that, Lord willing, next time. Thanks for your time.